This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and open in prayer before we begin our study of God's Word. Father, we do thank you for your revelation to us, that you have given us everything we need to know. You have revealed yourself. You have revealed to us our essential problem, which is sin, and your profound grace solution to that problem, which is the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to become a man and die on the cross for our sins. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us to understand these things and challenge us in our Christian life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, which is, as I have said, the real Lord's Prayer, not the passage over in, over in Matthew that deals with the disciples' prayer when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray. Several things that we have noted about this prayer so far, just by way of introduction, is that it tells us, and what we see here, <coughs> excuse me, is that Jesus is coming to the Father in dependence upon Him. Now, this immediately raised, or should raise in our minds, some questions about the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father. What kind of relationship is this? Is this an eternal relationship, or is the term Son of God simply a temporal designation? How does the Son relate to the Father? We have said that it is important for us as believers to understand who God is, how, what He is made up of, who are the persons in the Trinity, that it is good to understand the basic concept of the Trinity, that God is one in essence, three in person, but that that is merely a starting point compared to what the Scripture says. And so I spent the last several weeks going through these doctrines, and I want to summarize it a little bit this morning, and then I want to make some application and build a little bit of a framework for what we are about to encounter in the next few chapters of John. Often when we start thinking about the Trinity, start thinking about the hypostatic union, go back into church councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Chalcedon, where I ended last time, and we develop some of the intricate terminology that is related to this, it is easy, I think, for people to fall into a trap to think that, well, this is just nice academic information. Somehow it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that punches us in our stomach or hit, hit us between the, uh, between the eyes and make us think that, gosh, this is so great, I'm going to go home and use this this afternoon. 
And yet this is the kind of thing that is intensely, and I mean this, and I'm going to show this this morning, practical. I don't want anyone to make the mistake of thinking that these things that we have studied in the last few weeks are somehow just nice academic theology. And it's important to fine-tune these things and understand the vocabulary, but somehow it stops there because it doesn't. This is, this is fundamental to understanding uh, many things in life and how things in life are to function. First of all, by way of review, the first thing we saw is that the Father is clearly distinct from the Son in this passage. Jesus opens in 17.1. He says, Father... The hour has come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. So we see that these are two distinct persons. They are not identical. One of the mistakes that we studied was that in the early church, they had a problem trying to define and to explain the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the early attempts that was false was called modalism. And if you want to just catch a way to get a handle on this word, just think of the word mode. That God just exhibits Himself in three different modes. Sometimes He reveals Himself as a Father. Sometimes He reveals Himself as a Son. And at other times He reveals Himself as a spirit, sort of like one person who just puts on a different mask. One day he puts on this mask, another day that mask. So all you get to, the problem with this is that, that they saw very early, is that if this is true, then all, we'll call this the mask, draw a line right here, all you ever get to know is the mask. You don't get to know the person behind the mask. So modalism was deemed to be an inappropriate and false explanation of the uh, essential nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they were still left with a problem, and that is that the Bible says that there is a Father, there's a Son, there's a Holy Spirit. These are three distinct persons, but one God. How do you answer the question, well, don't you really worship three different gods? And the question was no, because the Bible clearly teaches that There is only one God. Now, this view of modalism isn't just ancient history. There's a group developed from a leader named Witness Lee. I think it was called the Universal Church. It's a modern uh, cult group that is um, uh, modalistic in their approach to Christianity. They were very popular back in the 70s and 80s. I haven't heard a lot from them recently when I was pastoring in, in Irving, Texas a decade ago. Uh, one of their rather large churches was around the corner from where I lived. So every now and then one of their missionaries would come tapping on the door. And so it was important to understand something about modalism to be able to uh, understand where they were coming from. Now, that view just saw God as one expressing himself in three different modes. The next attempt to explain God was called or is called subordinationism. Now, there is a difference between subordinationism and a recognition that there is subordination or hierarchy in the Godhead. Now, in subordinationism, we'll draw a line here. 
from eternity past to eternity future. And this would demarcate these two lines here. In between here is all of human history. And in subordinationism, you have an eternal God who has no beginning and no end. And at some time in eternity past, he creates a second God figure called the Son. And the Son has a beginning, therefore, in eternity past. And sometimes you would get some views, say that, well, no, he's a, Christ is a human and he get, gains his deity at the baptism of John the Baptist. Uh, and there are various different approaches, but this is subordinationism where the Son is not equal in essence to the Father. He is, has derived deity or created deity and he is subordinate to the Father not only in terms of his role, what he is to do, but in terms of his essence. Now, this was called in the ancient world, this view was promoted by a guy named Arius, so it is called Arianism. And it was finally rejected at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, which we looked at the last time, uh, finally rejected, ultimately rejected by 381, uh, A.D. at the Council of Constantinople, but it hung around for a number of centuries, and its modern manifestation today is Jehovah's Witnesses. So even though this is ancient history, what I always tell seminary students is you need to go back and read the writings of these men, is because they did a much better job at handling some of these problems than modern writers do. I mean, they were really in the trenches at this time, and our whole concept of, of the Trinity was developed from that time. Now, even our word Trinity came from a 3rd century A.D. writer by the name of Tertullian who used the Latin word, coined the Latin word Trinitas to derive the term Trinity. And this, of course, the word Trinity never appears in the Scripture, but the concept is clearly there. And we went through that in the Old Testament. We saw that all through the Old Testament there are passages that talk about God as plural. For example, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God is creating man, he says, let us make man in our image. And that plural pronoun indicates plurality. We also saw passages in uh, some of the prophets, in Isaiah and a couple of other prophets, that indicate God the Father talking to the Son and sending the Spirit. <coughs> From there we went to look at the nature of Jesus Christ, and we saw that Jesus was true humanity. He was born of a woman. He had to be a man. He didn't just appear to be a man. That was an ancient error called docetism. I didn't deal with that very much, but it was the idea that he was just a manifestation of God. He really wasn't in the flesh. But Jesus had to be true humanity. It's also clear from the scriptures that Jesus was true deity. And we looked at all of the various passages that indicate that he performed the works of deity. He was given the titles of deity. He's called God. He claimed to be God. We saw a, a, a number of passages where we saw Old Testament acts that were attributed to Yahweh, Jehovah of the Old Testament, and that these same acts were attributed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, which identifies Jesus Christ with uh, the Father. So we see that Jesus Christ is the Father. Now the historic definition, therefore, of the, tr of, uh, the Trinity is that you have 
three persons. Now, the term person itself in our Western civilization is also somewhat of a problem because we think of a person as a completely distinct individual. And that's really more than what we want to say in terms of the Trinity, but we're just limited by human vocabulary. We have three They have distinct wills, they have distinct identity in one sense, but they are united in essence. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they have a relationship to one another. The Son is eternally generated by the Father. And we looked at the passages that indicated that the term Son of God indicates His essence. It is not a term related to creation, birth, or derivation, the term begotten means unique. He is the uniquely begotten Son of God, and He is eternally generated. We looked at Psalm 2 and saw that that, is, that title is related to the eternal decree of God, and therefore the early church fathers said that He was created, He was, excuse me, begotten, not created. And they just used that term, monogenes, uh, in the Greek, begotten, as the term there, and I think that this is best indicated as eternal generation, he is eternally the Son. If there's any time when he becomes the Son of God, then it's not till that point that the Father becomes the Father. So there is an eternal relationship there. Uh, Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent the Son. Now, the implication of that phrase is not that God sent the one who would become the Son at the Incarnation, but that he is outside of time, and he is, when time reaches the fullness of time, the perfect conditions in history, at that time he sends the second person of the Trinity who is already the Son. So the term the Son indicates his eternal relationship to the Father. Furthermore, we saw in our study of John 15 that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son. So there is an eternal relationship in the Godhead. Now, in this relationship, we see two things. That they are equal in essence. There is no superiority of one to the other. They are equal in essence. The Father is equal to the Son. The Son is equal to the Holy Spirit. But they are subordinate In role, this means that they have different responsibilities and different functions within the eternal decree of God and that they function in different areas. And in order for the plan to come to full fruition, in order for it to be successful, then each member of the Trinity must complete his role in subordination to authority. Now, the third thing we learn from this is authority... Authority is eternal. The concept of authority and an authoritative relationship is present even in the perfect Godhead. That authority is not something that God said, okay, I'm going to devise this in in order to have uh, something in the created order, in order to bring order to creation, whether within the angels or humanity. That authority is something that is Uh, within the Godhead itself, so there's nothing wrong with authority. That's why you get passages in, in the Proverbs saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Fear of the Lord involves authority orientation. And if we are not oriented to authority in life, we will never be oriented to anything in life. We'll lose the capacity for life, capacity for our happiness, and we will always have problems because we don't understand the basic principle of authority. Now, where is it that you learn authority, folks? You learn it at home. This is one of the primary responsibilities of parents is to teach authority orientation to children. And that means that as a parent, you have to be involved in consistent, loving, corporal punishment. Every now and then I run across believers who think that somehow they're they're being compassionate or loving because they don't spank their children. But the scriptures say, spoil the rod and you, I mean, spare the rod and you will spoil the child. That it is one of the worst things you can do and one of the most unloving things you can do as a parent is to not punish corporally your children. If you don't spank them, I'm not talking about abuse. It's done in love. It's done in care. It's not done um, out of some kind of tyranny. That's why we have to understand this nature of the relationship of God. There's no tyranny within the Godhead. It is based on on the uh, basic concept of love between each member of the Trinity. And we've seen in passages in John when Jesus relates his love to the Father to his fulfillment of the Father's plan. So you can't even love. If you're, you are not teaching your children authority orientation through consistent discipline in the home, not only will they not have the capacity for happiness in life because they're, they're always going to struggle with authority orientation problems, they're not going to be able to develop a capacity to love. Because love, true biblical love, is not some emotion, just sentiment, feeling good about somebody, having that warm, fuzzy feeling because every, everything feels good right now. But it is related to authority orientation. And this is, I'm going to pull this together in a minute, but this is related to the fact that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. So authority orientation is related to love. If you don't have a... And, and just think about this culturally right now. What's happened in the late 20th century with the baby boomer generation is that they are characterized by a lack of authority orientation. They have been self-absorbed and self-centered from the beginning of time because so many of the parents operated on... Uh, uh, Dr. Spock's book, and they didn't have any cor- corporal punishment and no authority orientation, and so they decided to uh, rebel against all the basic uh, establishment uh, authorities in life, especially back in the 60s and 70s. They have no capacity for love. How do you exemplify that? They got the highest divorce rate, one of the highest divorce rates of any culture in history. No capacity for love, no capacity for faithfulness, no capacity for loyalty, because they have no capacity for authority orientation. So if as a parent, if you want to guarantee failure for your children, then you just uh, avoid being a strict, firm, loving disciplinarian. And all of this has to do with application from understanding the nature of the Trinity. You get away from understanding the Trinity and you start operating on just cultural concepts, then you, you lose any basis for properly understanding authority. That's why we have, when you, when you get away from, when you get away from thinking of biblically, then the only way you can think about authority is that it's something that is culturally invented. It's either ordained of God and is 
part of the essential working of the ultimate reality in, in, in the universe, or it's something that is created. If we go back to the diagram that, that we use that is so clear from Romans 1 that there's a distinction between the creator and the creature. Now, if authority is part of the nature of the creator, then it has to be mirrored in all of the activities of the creature. But if you make authority a creation of the creature, then it is not necessary. And so you can do away with it. And that is what had happened back in the French Revolution, and you ended up with anarchy there. There have been various attempts throughout history to try to do something about authority. And the entire modern feminist movement is just one aspect of that, because one of the uh, foundational principles in the modern feminist movement is that equality and subordination are mutually exclusive. If you're going to say that somebody is subordinate to someone else or is to submit to someone else, then you are you can't say at the same time that they're equal. What the scripture shows us is the Trinity shows that you can, that these two principles operate eternally in the Godhead and they are not mutually exclusive. But we have lived under the public lie of feminism in our culture for so long that people have bought into these concepts. They're forced upon us in education systems, in school systems, in, um, uh, in the workplace. They are federally, they are federally mandated. Are we having a problem with the sound? Have we lost it? No, John says it's okay. What happens is you start getting all of these programs federally mandated. It's okay. You get all these programs federally mandated for the workplace, for education, in the universities and everything, and it forces people to start thinking about roles and reality a certain way as if these are mutually exchangeable and if there's nothing um, important about them and that these are just somehow invented by man as, uh, as, as ways to make things work. They're just pragmatic options and therefore we can do away with them. You see the pr- same problem coming through in the, in the debate over homosexuality and everything else and we get away from, the, we drift away from the absolutes of Scripture. And as believers, if we're going to quit thinking about the world and thinking in a worldly way, we have to understand where these thoughts come from and how we as believers have subtly been pressured by the culture around us to think in terms of certain ways about marriage, about the role of women, the role of men, the role of husbands and wives, parents and children, and we have to to, uh, fight these things. Now, what we have seen in our study is that there is a relationship, eternal relationship in the Godhead between the Father and the Son that is equal in essence and is subordinate in role. Now, I want to show how this affects some practical areas in a minute, but to do that, I want to back up, hold that thought, and we're going to jump a track for a minute and develop another line of reasoning, and then we're going to come back and pull them together. I have stated from the beginning, there's going to be a little correction here too, I've stated from the beginning of this study of John some two years ago, 
that the purpose of the Gospel of John was given in John chapter 20. So hold your place here, or you don't need to hold your place here. Just turn over to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Hold your place there, and with one finger in John 20, turn back to John 10, and put another finger in John 10. So we can flip back and forth. John 20, 30, and 31, and John 10, 10. The context of John 20 is that Doubting Thomas has not uh, trusted the fact, the witness of the disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus. And so he has uh, been exercised skepticism until he sees Jesus physically. Jesus appears to him in verse 26. And he turns to Thomas and says, okay, I'm going to give you empirical data on the resurrection, that this is me. I want you to stick your finger in the holes here in my hands and in my side, and now you can believe. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God, recognizing the full deity of Christ in that sentence. And then Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, that is empirical evidence, have you believed And the implication is, yes, he has. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. That is, believe on the testimony of Scripture. Remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. Thomas believes only because he sees. Then in verse 30, we read from John, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. These is a... Um, a, a neuter plural pronoun in the Greek referring back to the Samian signs in verse 30. These signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Now, when I first started this series, I taught that this was the, emphasis on the, the purpose statement for the Gospel of John. It is the purpose, I'm going to revise that now, it is the purpose statement for the sign section of the Gospel of John. The sign section. The purpose for the sign section is to communicate the Gospel to unbelievers. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we can have eternal life by simply believing in Him alone. That is the essence of salvation. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus baptism. It's not joining a church doing good. None of that matters because we can never be good enough. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. We can never be good enough, even in our best, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and because He paid the penalty, when we trust in Him alone, His righteousness is imputed to us, and it is on the basis of that righteousness that we have a standing before God, not on anything that we do. Now, that is the purpose for the sign section of the Gospel. There are eight signs starting with the sign at the, first, at the wedding where he changed the water into wine, culminating in the eighth and final sign, which is the resurrection. But all of that relates to mess, the message to the unbeliever in how to have eternal life, how to have life unending in heaven. But there is a large section in the middle of this gospel that doesn't relate to saving faith. It is instruction to the believer. And that's what we're in the middle of. You know, sometimes it takes a little while before something, I beat my head against the wall long enough before I see the obvious. And from John 13 through John uh, 
the end of John um, 20, the focus is not on the signs other than the sign of the resurrection that comes in in John 20. The focus is not on the signs. It is on something else. It is instruction to believers. Now, there is a second purpose clause in John, and it is typical of John. You can demonstrate it from his epistles for him to have multiple purpose statements. And his other purpose statement is in John 10.10. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. That's eternal life. That is by believing on his name. And that they might have it, that is the life, abundantly. So there's two categories of life in John 10.10. There is eternal life, life without end, going to heaven when you die. And then there is abundant life, which is the quality and capacity of life that is ours as believers if we live according to the principles God's given us for the spiritual life. The sign section relates to gaining eternal life so that we have life without end, life in heaven. But John 13 through John 20, aside from the resurrection, John 19, is really designed to address the issue of spiritual life. Now, as we got into this in the upper room discourse, we saw the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with the disciples, the exclusion of Judas because he's an unbeliever. He has to be removed from their midst, so Jesus is left with only believers to address them in terms of the spiritual life. And so he begins by telling them, number one, I'm going to leave you soon in John 13.33. And then in John 13.34 he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. (coughs) Now this is a foundational concept. The rest of the epistle really focuses on this whole concept of, of love in here. If we were to look at the breakdown of the term love in the, um, we look at the breakdown of the word love in the upper room or in the gospel as a whole, agape is used or agapao is used, the verb form of the Greek word to love is used 37 times in the gospel of John. It is used seven times between John 1 and John in the end of John 12. In that it talks about the Father loving the Son, talks about the Father loved the world and gave his that he sent his only begotten Son, men loved the darkness. That's that summarizes its usage. Starting in John 13, we find 30 uses of agapao between then and the end of the gospel. It's very easy to guess what the theme is then. Now, if, if um, we were to take a look at this also in, this, in terms of other words, the noun agape is used seven times in the gospel, but it's only used one time before chapter 13. The verb phileo, the other word for a more intense form of love, is used 13 times in the gospel, only four times before chapter 13. And the term philos, the noun, is used six times in the gospel and only two times before 13. So if we take all the words for love, 
we see that about 80% of their usage in the Gospel of John are in the upper room discourse and the final uh, conversation between Jesus and Peter in John 21. Now, what is the significance of that? That's just a lot of data, but you've got to sit back and scratch your head a little bit and say, well, well what is this really telling us? Because if there's one thing that we should be aware of in our study of John by now, is that John not only gives us information in the details, but John also gives us, is trying to communicate things to us through this broad structure of what he's telling us. What John is saying here is that the core issue, as Jesus says, the core issue in the spiritual life is this kind of love that he is talking about here. Now, he, he tells us something about this love that it is exemplified in what he is doing. Now, if you go back and you take a look at John 13 through 21, the last part of John, and now you do another statistical analysis on these love words, what you will discover is that they are isolated in two groups. The first group is in the upper room discourse itself, John 13 through 16, love is not mentioned in the high priestly prayer. Not once. The next time you skip, no love in 17, no love in 18, no love in 19, no love in 20. The next time you see love mentioned, Jesus is confronting Peter on the beach and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep. And you have this interchange there through... He uses the synonyms of both agape and philos, and he goes back and forth. Why is it that there's no mention of love in 17, 18, 19, and 20? Think about this. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. In John 13 through 17, he's going to give them the basis for love, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit and abiding in Christ, which is fellowship. If you don't do that, you can't love one another. He says that in John 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So that's talking about fellowship. Then in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. What's he doing in 17, 18, 19, and 20? He's laying down his life for his friends. He is showing, demonstrating the as I have loved you in those passages. So he gives them the command. He describes its attributes and characteristics in 13, 14, 15, and 16. In 17, he begins to demonstrate what this love involves. It involves intercession for the church. That's what the prayer is. He is interceding for the church, and that's his present role at the right hand of God the Father to intercede for the church. And so we, we will see in our prayer the priorities that he has there and why he prays for us the way he does, and this is his love for us, and this is going to tell us something about what love is. And then in 18, 19 and 20, we see the the passion, the suffering, the arrest, the suffering on the cross, the resurrection, and there is the demonstration of what love is all about. Now that caused me to stop and think and start scratching my head because one of the most difficult things that you can define is the concept of love. And I'm not sure that I've hit a final definition yet, but I've been 
thinking about this a lot lately. And uh, we've gone through various studies on um, love in the past. It's one thing to say what love is not, sort of a definition by exclusion. Love is not, in biblical love that we're talking about here, the core idea of love. Let me stop and draw some concentric circles here. I'm going to draw three concentric circles. Now, out here in this outer circle, you might have certain emotional connotations of love. They may or may not be there. Okay, this is where we start introducing concepts of of sentimentality and emotion and certain warm, fuzzy feelings. But this is way out here, the third or maybe even a fourth or fifth level. This is not primary to the concept of love. What's happened in our society is we've taken these ideas that are really superficial, sentimental concepts, and we've tried to make them the core concept of what love is. But they're not. Not anywhere in the Scriptures. If you're going to define love and start talking about what the Bible says love is, then we ought to understand how the Bible defines love, and that's going to start with the love of God. So we, we have to realize that we have to exclude certain secondary, tertiary ideas that have been added to love. We can also come in here and we can talk about certain attributes, such as in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is gentle, love is kind, love is patient, long is, uh, love is uh, uh, long-suffering, and it, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And these are merely descriptions or attributes of love. They are not a definition of love. Now, I'm really pushing the envelope here. I was with a group of pastors not long ago, and I was in the car with three fairly uh, intelligent, erudite pastors, and I said, what's love? Everybody started coming up with ideas. I said, nobody's defining it yet. You're describing it. A lot of people don't understand. There's a big difference between defining and describing. I worked for a couple of years uh, writing a glossary, a definition, sort of a theological a theological dictionary. And it is a very difficult task to define words as opposed to describing words. And most of the time we, we hear a description and we think we know what it means and we're satisfied and we move on. And so I kept challenging these guys, define it, define it, don't describe it. Love is an incredibly difficult term to define. You look it up in the dictionary, it's always loaded with this, these emotional type terms but we lose sight of, uh, of the basic meaning. And a dictionary definition is almost worthless. I'm not dealing with, right now, with secondary attributes. True love, you can look at John 3.16, that God gave His only begotten Son. You can say certain attributes have to do with His initiative. It involves sacrifice. It involves wanting to do what's best for the other person. These are secondary defining attributes. But if, uh, or, or describing attributes, but if we want to get to the very core idea of what love is, then we need to perhaps go back into the Old Testament and pick up some concepts there. So let's flip back to Psalm 89.14. Psalm 89.14.
Psalm 89.14. The psalmist is talking about God and extolling God in praise, and he says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. So right here we see four attributes of God extolled. First of all, we have his setic, his absolute righteousness, which is the standard of his character. Then we have his justice, which is the application of his standard towards man. Then we have his love, here called loving kindness, and his loving kindness and his truth, his veracity. So we have four attributes of God. These two are said to be, this is foundational, the attribute which is usually called holiness. And these two are linked together as having to do with that which goes forth from God. Now, I'm in the process of developing this, so who knows where we'll be in a couple of weeks. This whole framework here relates to the integrity of God. The other, think about this. The other attributes such as sovereignty, omnipotence, omnipresence don't have to do so much with personal relationships. But if you think about a person, you want to have a relationship with somebody of integrity, you don't, and believe me, you don't want to have a relationship with somebody who lacks integrity. That integrity involves having absolute standards and sticking with them in terms of consistent application. It involves knowing what the truth is and being able to tell the truth consistently and love, which is related to this. Now, love is what we're trying to define here, what, what real love is. Now, the Hebrew word here for love looks like this in the Hebrew. Chesed. This is a hard C-H-E-S-E-D. It's kind of a, almost a soft T-H because it has no... No doggish there. Chesed. Now, if you read the literature, a lot of scholarly debate over what chesed means. But the root meaning is the idea of covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. God is the only God. You can look at the Buddhists. You can look at the Hindus. You can look at all the pagan religions, Zoroastrianism. You can look at anything you want to. And it is only the God of Christianity that establishes his relationship with his creature on the basis of a legal contract. That's what a covenant is. It's a legal contract. Only the God of the Bible is going to say we're going to operate on the basis of law. That's why Christianity is the only religious religion in the world that gives a culture a framework for having an absolute basis in law. And we can go a long way with that in terms of application of political theory. But it's God enters into a contract. He does this initially in Genesis 126 and 27. We studied that in the Old Testament series that God established everything there. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. All that terminology relates to a contract. He gives man responsibilities. He outlines his role, outlines man's role, gives him prohibitions, says how he will bless man, how he will curse man if man fails. And everything is set up legally on the basis of a contract. What happened? Man violated the contract and disobeyed God and fell into sin. What does God do? God's faithful to his contract. 
God does not leave man hanging in sin, wash his hands of the whole scene, and walk away. God continues faithful to his contract, says there's going to be some modifications now on your part because of the consequences of sin, but we're going to keep going forward. Then he comes to Noah, there's further failure. He comes to Noah and he says, I'm going to establish my contract with you. It's the same contract of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then he further stipulates this to Abraham, and he has some modifications with Abraham, but God is faithful to his contract. So chesed, love, faithfulness, loyalty, has to do with loyalty to a contract, to a contractual position that outlines roles and responsibilities. So when Jesus comes and he says, Father, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to do what? I'm going to do your will. That's why Jesus then says, if you love me, you'll do my will. Why? You're fulfilling a contractual relationship. We enter into the relationship with Jesus Christ at salvation and become partners of what? The new covenant, which is the new contract, the new testament. That, that, that word has to do with a contract. We enter into a new contractual relationship with God, and we are to be faithful to it. God is faithful to it. That's his love. Now, there's more to love than that. It's not just... Simply that, but that's the core concept of love is faithfulness, loyalty, and we can add to that to a absolute standard. Now, in John 13, we have seen Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now, that's the new part because the idea that you love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, goes all the way back to Leviticus 18 19. But now he gives a new model, which is, you love one another as I have loved you, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this love for one another is exemplified by fulfilling the mandates of the new covenant. for our life to grow and mature as to believers, which in affects how we then in turn relate to one another and we deal with one another in personal problems and personal relationships because of how Christ dealt with us. And how He deals with us is for, back it up, it's based on who He is in the Trinity and because He loves the Father, He does what is right and what is best for the creature. So when we love one another, it is faithfulness to God to do what is right and what is best for other people. That's where you bring in the secondary ideas of kindness and gentleness and goodness and love. Now, how is this then applied? In a more specific way, a broad way, is you love one another as Christ loved the church. But let's see how Paul applies it in Ephesians chapter 5. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. And it's always important to note that this follows the command in verse 18 to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that means that the ability to fulfill the mandates following verse 18 is dependent upon learning and assimilating doctrine and applying it. Not just learning it, but applying it so that there's character renovation. And then it's a, Paul applies this to the family. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he picks up the verb 
from the, in the Greek from the previous verse. The general command is be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the idea of fear of Christ is respect. Where does this come from? It comes from John 13. This is application of the overall love command to love one another as I have loved you. So it starts with what? Authority orientation to Christ. That's the starting point. That you can't love. There is no capacity to love in a marriage if there is no authority orientation to God. Period. If there's not authority orientation to God, then you're going to have serious problems in a marriage. Now, you may be able to work things out and have a good time and pleasant time, but there's going to be a tremendous compromise at the spiritual level in order to do that. Because if one member of a of a marriage is not subordinate to God and the other one is, then you're going to have conflict because they're serving different masters. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And now Paul addresses an application of this whole concept of authority orientation and love to the framework of marriage. He starts with wives. He says, (coughs) Wives, be subordinate to your own husbands. What? Because they're good husbands. Because they always make the right decision. Because they're, they're good leaders. It doesn't say that. As to the Lord. See, what happens in a marriage is a reflection of the, woman, the wife's relationship to the Lord. Her subordination to the authority of the husband is a direct correlation to her authority orientation to the Lord. She's not obeying her husband because the guy's right. Or the guy's a winner. She's obeying her husband because she is subordinate to her Lord and she's glorifying the Lord. Why? Here's the cause. It's clearly stated in the Greek. It should be translated because. Paul's giving us the principle. Because the husband is the head that is the authority of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Notice how this comes right down to the same principle as John 13, love one another as Christ loved the church. You don't understand the Trinity, and you don't understand what happens at the cross in terms of Christ's substitutionary atonement as it relates to love. You cannot function in a Christian marriage. You must understand these things and you must think about them and meditate on them and let them transform your thinking if you're ever going to achieve the kind of Christian marriage that God describes for us in this passage. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, we need to have a couple of of, uh, caveats here. And I always put this in because we live in an age today when one of the greatest problems is abuse. Now, this is not a justification for either staying in an abusive relationship or for the men to be abusive at all. There's no place for that in Christian marriage. And in fact, it's a principle in abuse is really the application of the principle of uh, self-protection and self-defense, which means to get out of the relationship physically as well as any other way. Just leave. Put yourself in a position where you can't be harmed. This is not talking about some kind of distorted, unhealthy, abusive type of relationship. 
This is talking about a positive relationship between the husband and the wife, and the wife is to be subordinate to the husband. I mean, he may make, he's going to make bad decisions. You're going to be involved in a job somewhere where you could do a better job than your boss, and your job is to subordinate yourself to the boss, to follow his authority and his leadership, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I mean, that's true for men, women, kids, everybody. We're all involved in authority relationships where the person in authority may be less talented, less intelligent, less capable than we are, and they may make stupid, foolish, unwise decisions, and we still have to go along with it. The same thing happens in a marriage. Now, now that I've gotten on the, the wives, it's the husband's turn. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Now, it doesn't say love your wives as long as they're thin. I heard about a guy recently who left his wife because she went from a size 6 to a size 20. There's no biblical justification for that. Uh, it doesn't say love your wives as long as they're beautiful, as long as they're lo- uh, young, as long as they weigh a certain weight, as long as they can fit into certain clothes, as long as they do everything you tell them to do, as long as they're submissive. It doesn't qualify it. You know, there's no qualification for the submission to the wife. There's no qualification for the loving leadership of the husband. Because the model isn't the wife or the husband. We don't love, we don't follow the leadership on the basis of who they are or what they do, but on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. That's the absolute standard, is the integrity of God. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself as a substitute for her. So the principle for husbands is to provide the same kind of loving leadership that Christ provides for the church. And the example of that is the cross. So we have to understand what the dynamics of the cross to understand marriage. Now some people think that one of the greatest problems we have today in Christianity is marital breakdown in our culture as a whole. So we need to always be focusing on family life issues and marriage issues. Remember, you're no better in marriage than you are as an individual believer because in marriage is just the joining of two individual believers. And so the solution to all marriage problems is for both people in the marriage to get right with the Lord and to advance in their own spiritual life. And that, if they are truly applying doctrine and advancing in spiritual maturity, that will provide the uh, problem-solving techniques to go forward in the marriage. But if one or the other is not, it takes two to make a marriage work, it takes one to make it fail. And if they're not, then it becomes difficult, but it is no excuse for not applying these mandates. So the issue is not, let's spend a lot of time talking about marriage and family. The issue is, let's spend a lot of time talking about advancing in the spiritual life. Because that applies to everybody, and if you're doing that, then it gives you everything you need to handle any circumstance in life, including those of marriage. So, let's skip down to verse 28. So, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So, if you want to, husbands, if you want to demonstrate self-love, you do that through sacrifice and putting your wife first and exercising biblical love in her direction. And then it concludes coming back uh, to the wife. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. See, she is to submit to the husband in 22, 
and she is to respect the husband in 33, and never says that the wife is to love the husband. She is to respect the husband. Why? We've got to go back to Genesis 3 to find the solution, which is that the major problem as a result of the curse of sin is that women are going to have a problem with authority orientation. So they have to resolve that under the filling of the Spirit and advance there. Now, husbands have a different problem because of the curse, and that has to do with a lack of responsibility and taking uh, the proper role in leadership. That's why the commands here, loving your wife as Christ loved the church, relates to leadership and why there's an emphasis on fathers in terms of leadership in the home in verse 4 of chapter 6. So it is only on the basis of learning doctrine and advancing in the spiritual life that we can understand authority correctly, and you have to understand authority correctly to operate in a marriage, because if you're not authority-oriented, you can't have capacity for love. And if you don't have a capacity for love, then what's going to end up is you're going to interpret these commands of subordination as tyranny, and you're going to try to lord it over the other person, and you are going to become abusive and tyrannical because there's no capacity for love, and there's no basis, there's no room for abuse or tyranny in a Christian marriage at all, whether it's emotional abuse or physical abuse. It has nothing to do with Christian marriage and should be excluded completely. When that happens, it is a clear sign that that person has no capacity for love because there has not been, there's been some kind of breakdown in doctrinal orientation. Now, all of that is simply to set the stage for what we're going to learn in the coming passage on Christ's love for the church. In his high priestly prayer of John 17, we'll see the priorities of love, and then we'll see the action of love in John chapter 18 and 19. And this is just to show that all of this talk that we've learned about the Trinity and the relationship in the Trinity is not just nice abstract theology, but it is foundational to every single relationship we have in life. And if you don't understand the Trinity, you're going to have problems eventually in life. We need to understand these things and make sure they completely change our thinking. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your word that explains to us reality, how you created things, how you created us, and what our purposes are and the importance of of authority orientation so that we can have capacity for love and capacity for relationships. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly understand these things and that we would have the courage to see how they apply to our own lives, that we would have be, be honest before the Holy Spirit, that we would deal with these things and let the truth of your word begin to uh, change uh, our, our thinking and to change our relationships that we might honor and glorify you. Father, we pray that you would uh, make it clear to anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their salvation, that the issue is not works, the issue is not uh, behavior, the issue is not church attendance, the issue is simply Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we just pray that you would challenge the rest of us with these truths, that we can understand them and that they would transform us more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.